0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nuchelle de Silva, and I am delighted to be joined by Jennifer Kaufman Buhler, who is an assistant professor of design history at Purdue University, where she researches the role of objects and spaces in everyday life, with an emphasis on the experiences and perspectives of objects, sorry, of consumers and users. We will be talking about her book today, Open Plan, A Design History of the American Office, published by Bloomsbury in 2021. Welcome Jennifer and thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you thanks for having me. Uh,
1: Could you begin by telling us a bit about yourself and your background, how you became a design historian and what led you to write this book?
0: Yeah. Um, thanks so much for that. Um, I uh, Really, it started uh, when I was an undergraduate, my interest in design history. I um, went to a small liberal arts college where I had the opportunity to sort of try out my interests in ways that I think were really um gave me a chance to explore things that I probably wouldn't have otherwise, and found myself writing about design. Although I wouldn't have known that that's what I was doing at the time. It's one of those things where looking back, I realized I was doing this design history adjacent work um, as an undergraduate. And it was actually while I was doing my senior thesis um, that I, I really, sort of landed on design history and realized that was something you could do. And I immediately applied to graduate programs. I, I applied actually to the Royal College of Art History of Design program, which is where I ended up going um, for my, for my uh, master's degree. Um, and then uh, kind of following on that, I uh, ended up doing my PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is where I started this work on the open plan and offices. Um, and, and that was actually the basis of my, of my dissertation and of course was then kind of reimagined into this book. So it is a, a very different text from the dissertation, but it builds on a lot of the research that I had done um, uh, as, as part of my doctoral work.
1: Uh, and focusing on this, this term, the open plan, it seems so familiar. It seems such a sort of normalized term to us nowadays, but you point out in the book that it actually functions more of a catch-all term that pulls together very different kinds of philosophies of work uh, and of spatial organization. And you talk about how these different kinds of ideas can overlap both historically and spatially, very materially in an office space. Um, And at the beginning of the book, you give the example of Freehafer Hall at your home institution, Purdue. And you talk about how some of these ideas overlap so what are some of the different ways or some of the different practices that the term open plan uh, can refer to? And how did you see them manifesting at Freehefer?
0: Yeah, um, this is such a, an important question um, because I think it does get to one of the challenges I was struggling with actually which is is all of these competing definitions of open plan <laughs> um, and I would say the first and and perhaps most obvious especially to people who have kind of an architecture orientation, is just an unpartitioned space right this is kind of the the kind of baseline understanding of the open plan and and of course that has a really long history so that is that is that is something that that um, is not at all new in the in the period that I focus on um, the kind of you know 60 70s 80s you know late 20th century um, but it, I think it is an important component of what of what the open plan is. Um, so that's one thing, the kind of large unpartitioned space. Um, the second um, it is this idea of the open plan as a kind of an approach to design or as a philosophy to design, especially to office design um, that really comes out of um, a, an office design concept called office landscaping, which was a German a German concept um, that uh, foregrounded um, patterns of communication as a kind of method for arranging workers freely in in an open space, in a large unpartitioned open space. Um, and, and that really um, became a kind of important piece that that led into American kind of ideas about the open plan. And then the, the third thing is the furniture, right? This open plan furniture, uh, modular furniture, um, like Herman Miller's Action Office. Um, like Steelcase 9000, like uh, Knowles-Morrison system, right? There's so many of them. Uh, but these, these kind of um, uh, modular kit furniture that could be assembled to create these kind of spatial spatial workstations um, that could be arranged in space. And so those were also saw as kind of an open plan solution. And so Freehaver Hall was this um, large open-plan office at um, at Purdue that had um, originally been built as an office landscape, as a purpose-built office landscape. So it was both a completely unpartitioned space, so this very, very large footprint with no no private offices of any kind for this huge administrative building. And then... Um, the, the QuickBorder team, the, the German group that had actually created Office Landscaping, actually came and designed that entire interior arrangement. And so the original design for Freehafer when it opened in the early 70s um, was um, this kind of swirl of these um, steel case desks and curving um Low movable screens that were sort of arranged very loosely in the space, um, uh, again to facilitate communication, which was which was the goal um, of that of that process. Um, and then, of course, by the time I arrived at Purdue in 2016 and, and walked into Freehaper Hall for the first time, um, having heard that it was this really important early open plan office, um, I encountered a sea of cubicles. <laughs> Um lots and lots and lots of cubicles. Um, and uh, and that that's, of course that other other iteration. So it was really a kind of moment of of thinking, wow, here here are all these things kind of converging in this space. Um, uh, so that was a really kind of um, I think a revealing kind of moment of how of how these both intersect and also diverge with each other
1: yeah absolutely. And it's very interesting to see how things change over time. Uh, to step back a bit, I realized you've you've talked a little bit about the Quickborner team and the kinds of work they did uh, for Free but could you provide a little bit of context for listeners on the kinds of theories about the workplace that they were responding to? Um, how the workplace, workplace was supposed to be managed and how that influenced various designs for the Open Plan office? Like, sort of, what kinds of work related ambitions were these new spaces trying to help fulfill?
0: Yeah. Um I mean I think the, the the big thing is is really this idea that communication was the lifeblood of the office and that offices needed to be arranged around patterns of communication. Um, and what really set quick the quickborner team apart from other other methods of um, office design is that they took the time to survey the communication patterns of every worker in the office everyone from the executive staff all the way to you know every secretary every word processor like everyone is going to get surveyed because they believed that communication was not a reflection of a organizational chart which dictates you know, this kind of flow in a very hierarchical way, but rather much more fluid and much more kind of organic. Um, and in fact, this was another kind of term that often got it um, ascribed to the open plan and especially to office landscaping, was that it was kind of an organic approach to design that reflected the authentic patterns of communication rather than the, impo- the imposed ones. Um, and that, you know, so they kind of reckon, uh, liken it to the pathway that emerges when people kind of naturally walk through. In the way that they want to walk versus forced paths that everyone has to sort of stay on, um, and so and so they were really interested in, in in fostering those natural pathways of communication and embedding those in in the office interior through design. So that was um, that was really their goal. And they were not designers, I should say. They were really very much you know office management types. They were more interested in the kind of managerial implications of it, um, which is why I think in many ways office landscaping was as much about the kind of philosophy that they were trying to represent as it was the kind of process by which they they managed it
1: so on the on the topic of office hierarchies and sort of trying to sort of break these down what were some of the ways in which office hierarchies of the 1950s found material expression in previous office design and then in turn how did some of these new forms of office furniture such as um You mentioned the the Herman Miller Action Office range. How did they respond to these existing hierarchies?
0: Yeah, um, this is such an important piece, right? So, the, the kind of iconic, you know, sort of post war American offices were very much defined by hierarchy right all the way in almost every every aspect it was mm-hmm. it was embedded in in so much of the planning um, you think about the the not only the private office itself right. the location of the private office the number of windows the the desk that you got not just the, the size, but the material that it was made of, the kind of chair you got, how many lounge pieces you got, whether or not you got a carpet, what kind of decorative elements you got, whether you got art on your wall, whether you had a private toilet, <laughs> like all of these things were were part of part of it. Um, and they had these kind of very, very um, systematic approaches to hierarchy in which you had these um, space standards. Um, so everybody, you know, companies would often have these very, very carefully laid out, you um, you know, for all of it, it was, this was none of this was arbitrary. You, you got what you were entitled to and every promotion was kind of came with like an upgrade to your space in some way. Um, and so that was kind of the, 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 the intention of it. Um, and, and kind of the, at the time it was seen as really problematic organizations really struggled with actually giving workers that, um, you know, the, what they deserved sometimes because mm-hmm. it was hard. Um, for example, um, if you have a, a row of offices that are all have movable walls, like the full height partitions will, you know, at a certain point, you're going to hit the end of that row of walls. You can't go any further. Right. <laughs> so like one office is going to get bigger. The next office also has to get bigger in that office, and that office. Um, and in fact, Union Carbide, which is a kind of a really kind of iconic example of this, um, this approach, the Union Carbide Building in New York uh, that was um, uh, designed by SOM. It had, um, it, they were spending in the 1970s, I think it's something like $1.5 million a year just in office moves for promotions, um, just in kind of making those kinds of adjustments. So it really was quite onerous for them. Um, and workers too, workers were obsessed with this stuff. And you get these stories about these really, you know, um, workers getting really mad with each other because they have... Im- imbalances in what they have access to, or what their offices—how big their offices are, or whatever—and um, so the open plan was sort of promised as the solution to this, right? It's more egalitarian. Um, it, at least it was thought to be more egalitarian, um, you know. And that that kind of manifests in a few ways. I mean, one is certainly in terms of the planning. There was this idea that more people would be involved in the open plan stuff, and uh, maybe mm-hmm. not so much <laughs> in practice, but at least in a theory, yes. Right. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, it was also sort of this, there was this idea that, that in eliminating private offices, um, you know, we get rid of that, that kind of piece of people kind of bickering over, over the size of private offices because nobody has a private office anymore. And then the furniture, um, because it emphasized kind of continuity and sameness more than difference, also kind of created an aesthetic of, of egalitarianism that sort of made it, made things more similar than different. Um, uh, although again, all of these furniture systems you know, were perfectly well-equipped to represent hierarchy, and, and there are plenty of ways for them to create new new modes of hierarchy, even in the open plan. So so that kind of promise definitely was not fulfilled in reality, but it, it was very, definitely part of the idealism of it and one of the, the things that really was celebrated about it at the time.
1: Right. Right. And you mentioned uh, earlier that much of this change was predicated on sort of the surveys that were taken on how patterns of communication worked. And so how did some of the proponents of the Open Plan Office address the tensions that arose between this goal of supporting better communication by means of the open plan office, but then also providing visual and acoustic privacy for workers, or as you put it, between access and enclosure. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this idea of communication is is a real, it's, it's kind of one of the centerpieces of mm-hmm. the open plan, mm-hmm. right? And this belief that just removing walls will naturally make everybody communicate better and more frequently and make it all easier. Um, and kind of one of the, one of the um, kind of anecdotes that, it's sort of it's totally false anecdote, but it gets shared a lot, which is this idea of the executives, the two executives sitting in their in their um, open plan workstations and being able to just peek over you know, the partition and see like, oh, this is, you know, is Joe is Joe free? Because, of course, he's a white man, because, of course, he is. Is Joe free? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Joe is free. Um, I can just go over and ask this question um, and everything will be so much easier and faster, whereas in the traditional office, he might. Um, tell his secretary to call the other executive secretary and there might be a memo sent and then a request for a meeting and there were all this bureaucracy right that's created by by the walls and all the, the administrative bureaucracy that that's that that the walls themselves also represent. So there was this this kind of natural belief that just tearing down the walls would make that all easier and make it all better and everyone uh, would talk um talk more freely. Um, but there was this this tension that you kind of point to about you know, um, on the one hand, we want to create um, communication and access, but there was also this recognition, even by those proponents of the open plan, that some degree of enclosure was really important. Some degree of privacy was important. And, and it was about kind of figuring out the balance between those those two elements. Um, and I do think this is really interesting because, you know, they really didn't see access and enclosure or privacy and communication as separate things or as mutually exclusive, that you could you could have both. And that was at least the the fantasy of it. But one of the ways in which they made the case uh, for um, providing sufficient enclosure in the open plan was to kind of try to reframe privacy as not something that's architectural at all. So so they kind of really wanted to remove the idea that you needed walls and a door to have privacy. Um, And instead to sort of say, oh, privacy can have privacy, psychological privacy is in your mind. (laughs) And that's why you can have a a private conversation in a noisy restaurant or in the middle of a cocktail party, that you're surrounded by people and yet you're having a one-on-one conversation and you don't feel overheard necessarily. And you know how is that possible? It's possible because you have, you have the sense of privacy without actually having privacy. And I said, so, so the open plan is much the same. You can have those private conversations. You can have that sense of privacy because there's so much going on in that space. You're going to be surrounded by people who are all doing their own things. And there's going to be this kind of hum of activity, and you're going to be fine. You you are going to be fine. Um, you will have all the privacy that you need to do the work that you need to do, um, and better because you'll also have access to people and be able to see and 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 so on. Um, so there is this just a really interesting kind of tension, um, uh, and and of course all of this supported by I will say by a lot of acoustic planning. So they were of course huge champions of you know um, you need all the. The the fabric-covered partitions, the plants, which were also acoustic material, you needed carpeted floor, you needed acoustic sound tiles, you needed um, white noise machines. All of these things were part of kind of creating a space that would manage, especially the noise of the open plan. Um, uh, And then when workers complained, inevitably, which of course they did, the open plan was yes, noisy, even with all the acoustic planning, Um, no, workers did not have sufficient privacy. (laughs) And so of course they were frustrated Um, and inevitably um, advocates of the open plan would say things like, oh, you just, you just have to get used to it. You will, you will learn to adapt to this new kind of privacy that we've given you or, or they would say um, about people who really, really wanted a private office and a door to close. They would say, oh, you just want to hide the fact that you're not working. Like anybody who claims they need a private office is really just trying to avoid work. (laughs) That's literally what they would say about these, these poor workers who were just like, no, please, I just need a door. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so it, it is interesting how it's it's kind of um, imagined as this kind of, you know, everyone's going to behave exactly as they're supposed to, and all the users are gonna just going to adapt to the space that architects have offered them and designers have offered them. Um, and, yeah, not so much <laughs> right, in practice.
1: <laughs> yeah, and y- your book really draws attention to the discrepancy between this, you know, the lofty vision that designers uh, kind of put forth, and then sort of the actual lived reality of workers. And one thing that really struck me was the way in which um, the ways in which so several design firms from Noel to Herman Miller, they designed suites of office furniture that was advertised as infinitely flexible, a dynamic response to organizational change that they imagined in very, very optimistic terms. But what were some of the ways in which these office furniture suites were actually very inflexible? Besides, you know, this, um, uh, you know, lack of privacy that they sort of, you know, turned on its head for workers. Um, What were some of the ways in which, uh, in material ways, these office furniture suites were inflexible?
0: Yeah, um, so I think I think it's worth even taking a step back to say, like, why why change? Why that flexibility was even desirable? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think you know that's that's an important piece, which is that at the time there was all of this kind of change happening, and and there was organizational changes happening, there were technological changes happening, there were social changes, there were economic changes, and there was a, a very serious belief that there this was only the starting point. Like there was going to be so much change in the future, and. Offices were seen as a barrier to change. There was this idea that I think was central to the open plan and its popularity that every change in the organization should have its mirror in the office, and that there should be a, a close relationship between those two things. Um, and you're absolutely right. So when the open plan was promoted, especially office furniture, this new systems furniture, it was this miraculous kit of parts that would just you could just assemble in a in a snap with the snap of your fingers and. And suddenly you would have workstations for everyone and you could make changes very easily and it would all be wonderful and seamless and easy to do. Um, and of course, what, what ends up happening is that, I mean, first of all, even the furniture systems that were relatively, you know, designed to be relatively easy to adjust, like Herman Miller's Action Office, all of these furniture systems got more and more complicated. So over time, they were adding more and more components and kind of updating and adjusting and changing to address new, new kind of emerging needs. Um, the systems themselves were, were actually quite complicated anyway. And this is something that I look at, right, is the kind of materiality mm-hmm. of systems furniture um, and sort of the, the, the assembly kind of under the hood. <laughs> so I looked at a lot mm-hmm. of installation manuals and for all of their claims that it's super easy, you know, you, you read about all the different um, connection connecting connecting components that you need. And, oh, you can use this work surface for, you know, these six different kinds of installations. But if you're going to do this installation, you need this kind of attachment kit. If you're going to do that installation, you need this other attachment kit. And by the way, if you want to attach it to a wall, this is what you need. And by the way, if you want to connect that wall to another wall, you're going to need this other thing. And to make it stable, you're going to have to add this and blah, 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 blah. Right. So it gets very, very complicated very quickly. And you can imagine the poor facilities manager, whose job it is to manage all of these parts, hundreds of pieces per workstation, all of that hardware, all of that, all of that knowledge, um, and trying to put all these things together and trying to keep up with the the constant pressure. And I will say, in in promising constant change, you also have offices that are now expecting constant change. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so, yes, we're getting more and more requests, too, um, and that, that just adds to the complexity. Um, and then, of course, I, I, one of the things I think a lot about is, is the way that not only was the, the flexibility, the promised flexibility of the system a problem for organizations and a problem for the facilities managers, it was also a problem for the manufacturers who had to try to keep all of the new components that they made backwards compatible to older versions of their furniture because they promised that that furniture would still be usable and so they were constantly hitting against the kind of constraints of their own design systems um, and, and therefore needing to kind of jerry-rig new components that fit with older things in ways that often created new awkward connections. <laughs> So it's just this, it becomes this absolute sea of kind of, you know, competing components and different components. And then, of course, you have places like Freehafer Hall at Purdue, where when they decide to swap out the um, office landscaping furniture, which, by the way, is not systems furniture, that was just, you know, steel case desks and freestanding screens. So actually quite simple, really, mm-hmm. truly simple furniture, because it was not Linked together, when they went to cubicles, they ended up using a whole mess of different furniture systems. They used 11 different furniture systems in for Hall. Um, and so they were they were actually connecting systems that were never meant to connect with each other, different lines by different companies. Um, so <laughs> it's like a whole other layer <laughs> of mess. But it really just shows how these things were, despite the image of these kind of hermetically sealed systems that would be so easy to use, they, no, they weren't. <laughs>
1: That's really fascinating. And I really love how you draw out through the materiality, through these connections, through these sort of um, the ways in which these systems were quite complicated. Um, They were kind of calculated, I think, to inculcate a kind of brand loyalty, which didn't always work out um, in realistic terms. Uh, And there were also other kinds of organizational changes that you know, weren't predicted at all. So, for example, you talk about how computers changed workstation requirements. Um, How did the open plan office fall short uh, when it came to computers? And how did organizations try to manage the practical problem of accommodating these extremely power hungry machines?
0: Yeah, this is such an important, an important piece, right? Um, uh, At the time that the open plan first started becoming popular in the, you know, Really taking off in the seventies, kind of starting in the late sixties, but you really see it kind of becoming dominant through the nineteen seventies. Um, at that time, personal computers were not a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were most computing was kind of centralized mainframe computing. There were some word processing word processing um, systems, but there weren't the, the kind of the, the standard you know office equipment of the day it was still typewriters and dictaphones and and calculators and and things of that of that sort. Um, and so the offices were built with a real um, shortage of power when personal computers first really started showing up in, in significant numbers um, you know, through the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and so you see this kind of moment where there's a real mismatch between the physical environment of the office um, and this new technology. That needs power. That needs physical support. That needs ergonomic support. And so there's this real, this real problem where the the furniture has entirely been built around this older, and and the offices themselves have been built around the assumption of, of this very simple kind of office equipment. Um, it needs electrical power, but not much. So you know, for example, you, you often see you know an allocation of one one power outlet per workstation because that's all you need, right? You just need one plug for your typewriter. That's it. That's all anybody needs. And and so you can imagine when the computer comes and you need a plug for your monitor and your CPU and your disk drive and your printer and maybe a a microfilm reader, because those were also a common thing, and your typewriter, because, of course, people often still had those right next to their computer. Um, So you really see this explosion of power needs. Um, And so one of the things that happens is that systems furniture starts to become the the kind of um, linchpin between... The technology and the architecture, and the technology and the, and the user, uh, sort of the kind of mediating that relationship. So, first is of course that power, and so one of the the, the major developments that happens really, really starting in the late 70s and early 80s is um, the integrated um, uh, raceways. There had always been some um, uh, integration of wiring in the the early systems, but they were mostly just runs of um, like extension cords, basically. <laughs> So you can imagine just like literally like in your living room, like a long extension cord running through the inner the inner, um, inner riceway. Um, and one what, what of the, the big changes is the emergence of a um, of a, a partition that actually has an integrated circuit um, and it eventually multiple circuits um, with the idea that on computers, because not only do they need a lot of power, but they need steady power that is not going to be interrupted. And so you needed to kind of balance the power access, extending the power access from the building and expanding it and making it more stable for all the users and all of their equipment. And so um, this was kind of an important an important piece um, of that. Um, on top of the power, of course, is also the networking cables. And that also goes inside of those partitions. So then the partitions of, of these standard office cubicles also become the, the raceways for, for the technological um, communication infrastructure of the office. Um, so, so that has to be managed and that has to be considered. Um, and then you get all these accessories and things that are designed to adapt the computer physically to, to the, the workspace. You get the VDT corner that accommodates the, the depth and width of the, the machine. Um, we get, um, you know, keyboard trays and keyboard drawers and ergonomic chairs and, and all of these other things that become kind of part of the new sort of high tech office. Um, But those have to be added incrementally. And and there's a real mismatch between the sort of moment when computers start to arrive and the sort of status quo of the office. Um, And and this kind of uneasy and kind of very incremental sometimes effort to update the office to accommodate all this new equipment that's kind of rapidly proliferating around the space.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is, I, I now have this incredible mental image of just, you know, feet upon feet, uh, yards upon yards of these like extension cords that people are bringing into the office to kind of retrofit or work around the limitations imposed by the, you know, these, these so-called flexible systems. And it's really interesting. And this is something that runs through your entire book, right? The, 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 the distance or the gap between designers intentions and workers reality. Uh, and one thing that really, uh, stood out for me is, you know, in some ways, these are very totalizing designs. So, for example, you have this moment where you describe how interior designer Florence Knoll derides workers' personalization of their work stat- workstations at the CBS offices. And that reminds me also of Adolf Loser's own essay on the poor little rich man who has this house built. And, you know, the moment he wants to try and personalize it in any way that this architect is highly affronted. like so, And he's like, not even this piece of art, but my child. And the, you know, the architect said, no, 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 not even that one. And so, you know, there's this, there's this big gap between um, sort of, you know, like, like the meme expectation versus reality. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was curious because you make this very central in your work, sort of moving the emphasis from designer uh, ambitions to the sort of lived reality and the agency of workers. So how were some of the ways in which workers – uh, subverted? How did they sometimes subvert this totalizing vision of the designer uh, of the work workstation, and, and sort of to extend that question a little bit, not only how did they subvert it, but how do you as a design historian go about recouping and making central these everyday experiences? I imagine that you have many challenges as you try and sort of do this kind of archival work, but how do you work around that? Uh,
0: that's such a good question. I I really, this is one of my favorite things actually about this research is is that piece of personalization, like how workers sort of um, subverted those intentions, how they how they worked within the limits of not only the the, the physical aspects of, of the cubicle or the space, but also the organizational limits on what they were allowed to do because so much of it is not just the architects and designers. It's also kind of organizational restrictions that say you're not allowed to have a plant in your office. You're not allowed to have, post things on your cubicle wall. Um, so, um, so yeah, so there's there's this really interesting kind of element um, of it. And, and I was really interested in all the ways that people – tried to personalize um, you get these great little little stories and a lot of it is it is very anecdotal because it ends up being these little stories of people trying to kind of bring things in or you know um, stories about uh, you know the posting of cartoons on their walls um, uh, yeah the the you know the office where, You know, everybody brings in office plants um, to personalize. Um, In fact, actually, that's one of my favorites um, because it was at the um, AIA offices, which was planted as an office landscape. They had told their their workers um, that they weren't allowed to put anything on top of any of the. Of their top of any of their cabinets or anything, and they eventually actually got permission to bring plants, and then all of the workers started bringing in plants, um, and it was one of the workers most favorite things about the space. Actually, was all the plants. So you get these great stories about about workers kind of you know um, even surreptitiously doing things like. Taping, um, taping a, um, a cartoon on the inside of a drawer so that they can see it. Um, and so, so there's a lot of meaning too that you see attached to these things, um, uh, these objects and 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 devices that people that people bring in. Um, personalization also happens in ways that are are, um, really are actually kind of problematic. Um, so for example, one thing that is not uncommon is for people to bring in appliances to their workstations. So things like, um tiny refrigerators and, um, uh, um, microwaves and popcorn poppers and things like that. And those actually draw energy from the same equipment, right? If we're talking about the like problem of energy management and, um, not, you know, blowing a circuit that a computer is on and you have a microwave on that same circuit, um, <laughs> yeah, things things can go wrong. Um, so, so yeah, so it is. I think it is a really kind of complicated piece about how how workers mm-hmm. kind of inhabit these spaces and what they do with it. Um, and it is. It's really this is this is the stuff that's very hard to find, as you point out. Like it is it is hiding in the tiniest little details. Um, you know, there might be you know memos. Did you just see a lot of memos? Like, you know this is a new policy you know workers are no longer allowed to bring personal photographs to the office uh, which actually is a real thing some some even forbid personal photographs I know, what, why <laughs> um and <laughs> seems quite draconian <laughs> it is it is i in fact i actually found um in part of my research i found one um a group uh, set of set designers who were willing to allow personal photographs in their newly planned workstations, but only if the photographs were a certain size and were in standard frames.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs>
0: You know, it's just like, what are they thinking? Um, I, Yeah. Um, So anyways, you get these funny little kind of stories of, of these rules um, or, you know, office booklets that are like, welcome to your new office and here are all the rules of how you can, you know, inhabit the space. But actually a lot of the stuff you see hiding in like um, office newsletters and things like that. So when you're looking, it's, it's, you kind of have to look in some unusual places. So it's like reading the, you know, the holiday, you know, you're looking at a, a, a an office um, newsletter, and there's an article about the holiday party, and you see the office is mm-hmm. all decked out for Christmas. You know, it's, it's things mm-hmm. like that, where you kind of see some of these, some of these things in action, but, um, but it is, it is hard to find. And it does take a lot of kind of creative ingenuity to kind of locate, um, and lots of time just, you know, looking, <laughs> looking yeah. through paper after paper, which to me, I mean, to me, that's the fun part, right? This is what we do, but... <laughs>
1: yeah but it's such a challenge because I that was what like that was what I really enjoyed about the book. But as I was reading it, I was like, How did you find all of this stuff? you know it, so it it you know, this is something we aspire to like how how do you sort of manage that um or rather bridge that gap between intentions and live reality? and sort of how do you make that uh, kind of scholarly work possible within the sort of limitations of what sometimes constitutes evidence in in our yes. field. so yes. so this is, you know this this is really interesting to kind of figure out, okay, how do we um as scholars think creatively about how we bring in new forms of evidence and sort of think about you know agency in multiple ways? Yes. Uh, and as I sort of, you know, towards the end of the book, as I was reading, um, you know, your closing chapters, one thing that really struck me was uh, when you bring us more into the present, you sort of talk about the alternative office movement, which sought to undo cubicle culture and enable greater circulation and movement. And you see that as following the logic of the older open plan office and sort of resulting in things that have become very normal to us now, like telecommuting or non-territorial offices that are a little bit more sort of dispersed and dematerialized. And I really appreciated the insights you bring here because you really call attention to the ways in which there are many, many workers whose unacknowledged and often quite invisible labor makes these so-called democratic spaces possible. Uh, Could you talk a bit more about this and perhaps what it was like writing this during the pandemic where i think you know a lot of us have become a little bit more aware of this how did this perhaps change or sharpen your insights on these less acknowledged forms of work
0: yeah um yeah this chapter was i think really challenging to write actually and it was one of the it is the last chapter's last one that i the made body chapters that i wrote and at the time i wasn't even sure what this one was gonna be mm. <laughs> um, you know so this is one where I, I started realizing that that this idea of movement as a kind of organizing kind of element of open plan concepts was really important that that movement was central and and that it really comes to it to fruition especially with that alternative office movement of the 90s which was kind of um, you know uh, as you say very antithetical to you know the 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 sinister cubicles, the evil cubicles that have taken over offices. Um, uh, so instead we're gonna, we're gonna open things up again (laughs) and, um, we want people to move again. You know, this is, this is, um, this is that, um, and so much of it is about this idea that movement is inherent, inherently liberating that workers need to move, um, that it's healthy and better to move. I should just also point out it's a very ableist vision of Mm -hmm. the office Mm -hmm. because there's this idea of everyone, no one is fixed. Everyone is is moving around all the time. Nobody even has a fixed necessarily workstation. Um, You can just just work from anywhere. And there's this idea that people can just work from everywhere, which is not necessarily true um, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, But this real kind of fantasy of that um, in, in offices themselves in this period, you start to get these, you know, especially these are these are, I should mention, like the top of the line offices, you know, <laughs> you know the, the the flagship offices of big companies that have, you know, uh, cafes and lounge spaces and project rooms and all these different kinds of spaces where workers are going to be moving about throughout their day. And, and they even talk about like pulling workers in. To certain parts of the office, you know, getting them to get up and move by drawing them out of their workstation, out of out of the idea of having to stay in your in your spot. And again, so much of this is about communication. So never escape the the promise that if we just if we just get rid of walls and get rid of workstations, we're all going to talk more. That's that's always the 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 (laughs) promise. Um, But absolutely, as you say, when we talk about this kind of fantasy of everybody moving around and everyone has the freedom to work wherever they wish, that there were all of these. Um, other workers who had none of those freedoms, who were Mm -hmm. not a part of the story. And I was really, it really stood out to me as I was reading, you know, the, the you know, there's all these books, um, you know, that describe in glowing terms, this new office. Um, And they are talking about a certain class of worker, a professional worker, mostly a knowledge worker um, who is going to have all this freedom and flexibility in their time and their space. And they, they give almost no attention to the legions of lower tier workers who are doing the work that makes it possible for all these other workers to move. Um, So the secretaries and receptionists and administrative workers of all sorts, the the service workers that are there, all the contract and temporary workers. Of course, this is also the era where that really starts to become um, a a common, common practice among a lot of organizations, which is, you know, fewer full-time staff and more and more contract and temporary staff. Um, And they have almost none of the, um, freedoms that their that their full-time professional colleagues do right like they are expected to stay at their desks they do not get to enjoy the office you know, treats sometimes. They're sometimes not allowed to use the office um, exercise equipment if there is exercise equipment. Oh, yeah. Um, temporary workers and, and contract workers, even when they're doing the same jobs as their professional full time colleagues, are often completely excluded from some of these benefits of these offices. Um, so you, you get, like, I think various levels of stasis. Like, I, I think about the stasis, the physical stasis. So, absolutely, the secretary and the receptionist, who literally in the call center worker. Who are literally stuck in place, uh, but also the kind of economic stasis, the the inability to get out of, for example, temporary jobs and so on, and how mm-hmm. all of that supports and facilitates the freedom and flexibility of this other class of workers. Um, and I'm so glad that you you kind of saw the connection to COVID. Um, I was actually finishing the final revisions of this in March 2020, so just oh, as COVID started, and it just. We could just barely glimpse the future and of course could have no vision. I had no idea right. what was to come. None of us did in March 2020 when I was finishing it. I think I managed to get one little tiny reference to COVID in the conclusion. <laughs> and that's all I thought I could add because I was like in the final stage of revisions. But I did feel, I do, and I do feel that this chapter actually has a lot to say to our present moment. And that the the story that it tells is sort of inverted, was inverted in the COVID moment, right? right. In, in this case, the people who got to stay, stay safe and stay home, were those same professional workers who had the freedom and flexibility of time and space to work from home and who had jobs that where they had that flexibility. And the people who were still going to work, were the people and having to go out and be in harm's way and whose bodies and whose lives and livelihoods um were, were put in in danger. Um, were these these again these kind of lower till workers who you know, have none of the flexibility and none of the opportunity. And I get really frustrated with these stories, of like all oh, the workers now, they have so much choice and so much freedom. Like, no, no, they don't. Some classes of workers get that, right. have those choices. Absolutely. But, but not, not everyone. Not the, not the vast majority. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> by no means. And so it really, it really, I feel like is a very kind of revealing moment. Um, uh, and so I, I do think, I do think about that and about what, what that, what that says about you know where we're going and, and the inequities that still exist in, in our own modern workplaces um, that, that you know my my book is also trying to kind of unpack historically.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what I've really appreciated about the whole book. You trouble a lot of these idealized, totalizing, optimistic visions that seem to sort of assume a kind of universal that is really very contingent upon, you know, issues of class, race, gender, and really are available only to some and in very specific kinds of situations. Um, But at the same time, you kind of really bring to the fore the ways in which workers of all stripes are sort of thinking about moving through, uh, challenging, subverting some of these totalizing visions and, you know, the, the sheer complexity of the the seemingly streamlined seemingly you know sort of um, sleek uh, uh, you know kind of um, open plan office you you kind of bring to the fore all of the the the, the problematic creases and, uh, and and nubbly problems that 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 are very inherent in this um, in this mode of design Um So you mentioned that you were wrapping this up just as um, the beginning of the pandemic hit. And I was wondering, um, what are maybe some of the traces from that project that you kind of want to carry into the future? Or are you thinking about different things now? What are you working on now and, and what's next for you?
0: Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, I am. I am just, you know, kind of still. There are some pieces, some lingering pieces. There was so much that I couldn't fit into the book. Honestly, of course, there was. Mm-hmm. There always is, right? Right. Um, so there, there are a few of those of those um, pieces. I have, um, you know, an article on office plants. I spent a lot of time thinking Ooh, about office plants. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so office plants. Uh, I have some work on on office lighting also that I, I really wanted to talk more about lighting and I, I didn't get to, to talk about that nearly as much as I wanted to. Um, you know, there's there's a few other pieces in there that I, I feel like would would um, spin out into their own kind of, so I'm hoping I'll get those out, um, you know, before too long. And then I also am kind of looking ahead to new, new directions of research and new kind of angles. So I've been doing some research actually right now. I'm about to give a paper um, at a conference about, um, office supplies, mm. um, which is something I, I, um, absolutely love, um, thinking about. So, um, office supplies and especially office supply dealers, like, and sellers so office supply shops. Um, but actually, I think the, the kind of longer term project that I'm, I'm really um, looking at is um, looking at the U.S. Federal Design Assembly, uh, which is the the program that was about um, from the 70s and 80s that was about promoting design for the government. Um, and, and it's something I actually ca- it is another one that I came into through this research, because as part of as part of my research on. Um, the open plan in government, I came across the GSA's kind of office excellence plans, which involves sort of implementing open plan offices. In federal offices. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And I was going to write about it. But as soon as I opened up that can of worms, I realized that that was just the tip of a very large iceberg right. that related to design and government. And I thought, you know what? That's that's another project. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a whole other culture, a whole other way of operating to explore there. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's really different um, uh, types of design that were involved because it wasn't just office design and architecture, it was also graphic design and product design all kinds of other things so so that's kind of I think what I'm where I'm headed we'll see
1: <laughs> that's so exciting uh well I look forward to seeing all of the work that comes out uh, in the future and I really appreciate your taking the time to talk about the book um and I really encourage everyone to read it uh but before we go how might listeners find you or follow you learn more about your work so that they can have the pleasure of reading the book that I did
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, my website is um, jkbuhler.net. That's J-K-B-U-H-L-E-R.net. And then I'm on Twitter. I'm an active Twitter person. So at uh, Kaufman underscore Bueller. that's at K-A-U-F-M-A-N-N underscore B-U-H-L-E-R. Long name. (laughs) So yeah, those are probably the best, the best ways to track me down. And of course I'm at Purdue. So searching my name in Purdue will also, yes. Wonderful.
1: Thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. And this discussion of Open Plan, A Design History of the American Office by Jennifer Coffin-Buller, published by Bloomsbury in 2021, was brought to you by the New Books and Architecture channel of the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our channel and uh, listen in to future episodes on the architecture channel. Thank you very much.